Lead us. Give us grace to follow your glorious Son in all things, including forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Turning your Bibles to Philemon. Philemon is in between Titus and Hebrews, one page, one chapter. going to start with verse 8 and read through 21. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you from my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. How important is the gospel to you? How important is the gospel in your life? What is the gospel? The gospel is... The good news that the holy, holy, holy God of all creation will make peace with sinners like you and me. The gospel is the amazing news that the almighty, perfect, and righteous king of the universe sent his only son to obey the law perfectly for wicked rebels like us. So that we might spend eternity with the God who made us. 
The gospel is the heartbreaking news that the Lamb of God surrendered his life, laid it down to the agonies of the cross for the Father to pour out his vengeance, his wrath, his anger upon him as though he lived your life. He was treated like he was you. And why would he do that? So that you might receive adoption, forgiveness, mercy, love, salvation. The gospel is the great news, the glad tiding that death could not hold him, but he rose three days later and ascended to the Father and is waiting for the call to return, to bring those who love him, who are in him, who believe in him, to be with him forever. The gospel. How important is that message to you? Now, Don't answer too quickly, because we really need to think about this. How much does the gospel impact your everyday life? You may say the gospel is very important to me. But how do you know? Say, well, I I preach it. Uh, We sing it. I have books on my shelf that talk about it. I I talk about it in my home. I have t-shirts and clothing with it it's on my coffee mug it's on the decorations in my house it's on my playlist well let me ask you this how quickly do you forgive others how much do you demand that somebody pays before you forgive them how often do you think about Christ his blood the cross, the Father, the day of judgment, when it comes time for you to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is we can be all about the gospel in one way and neglect it completely in another in its application and its impact on our lives. Because the gospel was never meant to be just something that we tell people, right? The gospel is the very blood in the veins of the Christian. I mean, listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and listen to this, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. You see, it's not just something at the beginning. This is the very air we breathe. This is the very atmosphere that we are surrounded in. This is everything to us because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of our God. The gospel is more than just a message we hear that gets us saved. It influences everything that we do including forgiveness. And the way that you handle forgiveness says everything about your theology, says everything about your affection for Christ, the gospel, eternity. It has everything to do with your Christianity and it has everything to do with this letter. This letter that is only one chapter long, 25 verses. And yet, in this very small letter, every person in this room, every person under the sound of my voice, including the one who's speaking, 
is in this letter. In fact, there are three uh, positions in this letter, and at different times, you will find yourself in all three of them. What do I mean? We have someone in this letter who is trying to make peace between two people who are at odds. Paul is trying to reconcile Philemon and Onesimus. And there are times in your life, maybe even now, when you are working diligently, struggling with all the might the Spirit of God works in you to take two hands that are apart and bring them together. You will find yourself as a peacemaker at times. We have someone who sinned against someone else. Here's Onesimus. And there are times, maybe even now, where you are the one who has offended someone else. You have betrayed someone else. You have hurt someone else. You have wronged, sinned against someone, and you need to be forgiven. Sometimes you're the one trying to make peace. Sometimes you're the cause of a lack of peace. And there's someone who needs to forgive. Philemon. And again... You may find yourself in that position right now. Someone has wronged you. Someone has betrayed you. Someone has harmed you. And you, like Philemon, need to forgive. This letter contains all of us. And I trust that the Spirit of God will help us to obey what is being taught here. And if you are here and you're not a Christian... And you wonder why is it so difficult for you to forgive. No matter how hard you try, you're just unable. Well, keep listening. The gospel is able to change you too. So let's begin looking at Paul. He's the peacemaker. So if you're taking notes, this is heading one. Paul, the peacemaking one. What do we learn from Paul? What does he do? How does he handle this matter? When When you want to bring two people who are enemies and you want to bring them together in peace, how do you do it? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a good one? I mean, what what do you do? Well, let's look at Paul. We we, we look at verse 8 through 10. First thing we see is how Paul seeks to convince his friend to forgive. Accordingly... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul was an apostle. He had authority. He had authority to command Philemon, forgive and do what is right. But he didn't use his authority to get his way. He didn't say, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore I command you, forgive this brother. He could have, but he chose another way. He chose a more excellent way, a way that you and I need to follow. What did he do? What did he appeal to? He uses love as the motivation for love's sake. He was making this appeal. In a courtroom, a lawyer may hold up. Here's exhibit A, and here's exhibit B, and here's exhibit C. But as Paul approaches Philemon in this letter, 
to convince him to forgive, he holds up one exhibit, exhibit L, <laughs> love. He has one argument. He has one tool, and it's love. Brothers, when your wife won't submit to you, what is your strongest weapon to change her mind? Is it a deep voice, a loud voice, a stern look, or do you appeal to love? Do you point to the love of Christ? Do you point to her love for the Lord? Do you talk about love at all? Do you see love as a tool to persuade a believer? Sisters, when your husband is not leading or loving you as Christ would have him, what do you think will persuade him? Is it going word for word with a sharp tongue, a disgusted face, or a cold shoulder? Is that the most effective way? Or do you appeal to love? We tend to use threats, silent treatment, attitude, pity party. Paul doesn't use a heavy hand here. He doesn't take out his apostolic belt. He doesn't threaten church discipline. He doesn't talk about hell or false brethren. Prove you're really a Christian by this. He doesn't do any of that. He uses love. The Bible says much about love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? When you seek to bring two people together in peace, use love. Now, of course, we're not talking about love the way the world defines it as a, uh, just a feeling. Paul was certainly not saying, Philemon, you know the way you feel so warm and fuzzy about Onesimus? Let that lead you to forgive him. Clearly not, right? He is appealing to biblical love, to Christian love, to divine love. He's appealing to the scriptures and what Philemon already knew about love based on his love for the Lord and the love that the Lord had for him. Subverses, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all you do be done in love. 2 Corinthians 8, 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the chief thing. 1 Corinthians 13, everything you can do, continue to do all these things. But if you have not loved, you've done nothing, you've said nothing, you have nothing. God is love. Love is the proof that you're one of the disciples. All men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. The reason you're saved is because God loved you, not because you loved him. The reason you're faithful is because the love of God was poured into your heart. The only reason that you love all the saints is because God first loved you and showed you that love by sacrificing his only son for you. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When you're trying to help someone, you're trying to help a believer forgive another person, believer or not, appeal to love, 
point to love? What does the Bible say? What has Christ done? What has God done? It's very convincing. But Paul didn't stop with just saying love. He also does something else. He floods this letter with Christology. Christology, of course, is the study of Christ. He points to uh, so much about Jesus. He talks about Jesus explicitly and implicitly. Look, look at the language with me. Ver- verse 8. He says, though I am bold enough in Christ. That's not a throwaway phrase. In Christ. It's so often repeated in the Bible. To be in Christ is to be born again. How do you get in Christ? That means that God has done something in you. How? Through Christ. To put you in Christ. And Christ in you. The hope of glory. In Christ, he's bold enough. Verse 9. A prisoner for Christ. The life that surrendered to Jesus and the providence of God that he talked about before. Verse 10, whose father I became in my imprisonment. How do you become someone's father? <laughs> my child. How? What does that mean? This is talking about regeneration. This is talking about being born again. How are we born again? We're born again by the Spirit. And what does he use? The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's flooding this letter with Jesus. Verse 13, imprisonment for the gospel. Again, Everything he's saying is bringing Philemon's mind to Christ, to the cross, to the whole point of all of this. And look at verses 15 through 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He points to the sovereignty and providence of God. Perhaps this is the whole reason why he was parted from you. Because God worked all this out for you to have an opportunity to forgive. He points to high theology of the transformed life. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother. He says earlier, once he was useless, but now he's useful. Who makes useless people useful? Christ. How? Through the cross, he changes his identity from a slave to a free man. At one time, we regarded everyone according to the flesh, but no more. Now, see him as a brother. How does this happen? Christ alone. And then he says, uh, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The, the, the fact of Jew and Gentile no longer being a cause for division, but there's unity both on earth and in heaven. What else did he do? Not only does he appeal to love and continually talk about Christ. His motivation, his reasoning. He doesn't talk about how it's going to make Onesimus feel better to be forgiven. He doesn't talk about how it's going to help Philemon's health to forgive. You know, there's a reality that if you hold unforgiveness, it can make you sick and all that. But Paul doesn't mention that. There's no language of earthly reasons Everything is pointing to Jesus, to eternal things, to kingdom things. Is that how you seek to reconcile enemies? When people need to forgive, what what do you tell them? It's the right thing to do. It'll make them feel better. It's just the Christian thing to do. It's what you would want. It's not that big a deal. Just let it go. Or do you appeal to the deep, wide, vast 
glorious truths of Christ and the cross. And that's what he's doing. He lays a foundation of love and builds a monument to Jesus Christ on it. He does something else. Again, we're looking at when you are trying to be a peacemaker, looking at Paul's example and learning from it. How do you convince someone that they should forgive? Some people have said that Paul is manipulative in this letter. It's quite a statement, since manipulation is sin. Well, why do they say that? Well, listen to some of Paul's words. Look at verses 9 and 10. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner. An old man. They say, well, yes, he's talking about being old because he wants Philemon to feel bad for him. He's trying to guilt trip him into this. Verses 13 through 14. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Your goodness might not be... Is he just assuming he's going to do it? Is he, is he trying to cunningly trick him into doing this? Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Wow, I mean... If you consider me your partner, I, what are you saying? Verses 21 through 22. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. And some have said, yeah, he's trying to say, hey, look, I'm going to be there, so you want to make sure you do this. And manipulation trying to force him through guilt trips to do what he wants. Is Paul just being passive-aggressive? Not at all. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. What is Paul doing? He's believing the best about his Christian brother. He's expecting him to behave like a believer. This is the same Paul who's comforted because Philemon loves all the saints. He's not expecting him to do something different now. He's expecting him to behave like a believer. This is the same brother who opens his home, risks his life and his family's life for the sake of Christ and his church. He's not going to do anything differently now. This is one of the most powerful methods that you have as a Christian. When you are approaching another Christian, trying to convince them to do something that the Bible says, when you expect them to act like a Christian, you expect them to behave like the Bible says they should behave. It's not sarcasm. It's not manipulation. It's Paul being consistent with what he believed about Christ and the gospel and the work of the Spirit of God in the heart of a soul. Why does Paul mention his age? Is he saying, feel bad for me, I'm an old man? I, I think it's very similar to what he says in 2 Timothy 4.6, where he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is Paul doing in 2 Timothy? I think the same thing that he did in Philippians when he used that language of being poured out. The same thing he's doing here. He's nearing the end of his life. He's an old man. When he stood by and watched Stephen be stoned, it said that he was a young man. Now he's an old man. He's nearing the time when he will depart and be with the Lord. His life has been very difficult for the sake of Christ. He's in prison for Christ. He's appealing to this man like, look, this is what we do. We're nearing judgment. Here's an opportunity for you to do what Christ requires. And he expects Philemon to do that because he is a believer. How could Paul have confidence of Philemon's obedience? Not because he tricked him into it. He had confidence in the cross of Christ. He had confidence in the spirit of God. He had confidence in the word of God, in the heart of Philemon, that it would move him to do what Christians do. If you have a sister in Christ who needs to forgive someone else, do you have confidence that they will do it because the Spirit of God is in them? That God has done a work in them? Do you expect believers to behave like believers? Do you talk to believers as though they're going to because the Christian wants to obey? The Christian wants to be pleasing to the Lord. The Christian wants to obey Scripture. The Christian does not desire to rebel. Rebellion for the Christian is unnatural. It's the grief of the Christian's heart when they don't do what is right. The Christian desires to walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And when you talk to the believer like that, when you say, look, I know you want to do what's right. I know you want to forgive. I know that you want to do even more that's expected of you. It reminds the believer, you're right. (laughs) This is who I am. This is the new me. I remember John Piper talking about his daughter, Uh, She was a new believer, and when she would say something that was unkind to John Piper's wife, he said he would talk to her and say, is that really how you want to talk to your mother? Don't you want to honor her? Don't you want to respect her? Don't you want to obey her? What was he doing? He was speaking to the new creation in her. He was speaking to the spirit of God that prompts her. She is controlled and compelled by the love of Christ to no longer live for themselves, but for he who died. You see, he's appealing, not just to love, not just to high theology and Christology, but expecting them to behave according to what is true. Because Jesus really does crush idols, doesn't he? The Lord of glory really is able to do what no human being is able to do. So there are times when you are trying to make peace between two people. And I would encourage you, look at Paul's example, appeal to love, flood that conversation with Christ and eternal reasons. Don't use just regular reasons that they can argue out of. Take them to the highest heights of motivation and then expect them to behave like a believer what if you're not trying to make peace between two people? What if you, as I said earlier, you're the cause of the trouble? What about when you're the one who needs to be forgiven? 
you have sinned against someone. You have wronged God and someone who loves you. Someone who trusted you. And you betrayed them. You failed them. You offended them. What do you do? How do you handle what you've done? Again, I think this letter is extremely helpful and instructive. Onesimus. Okay, he was a runaway slave. We discovered that last time. He was also a thief and a liar. Where did he lie? Well, he lied to his master saying he was going to be somewhere where he wasn't so that he could run away. He was a thief. He stole Philemon's property. Paul said, if he has wronged you in any way or defrauded you of anything, charge it to my account. Understanding that whether he took that money, that possession, sold it so that he could live a riotous life like the prodigal son, or he was being responsible and using it just to survive, we don't know. But we do know is that he was a thief. He lied. He stole. And he was a criminal. This was against the law to run away as a slave. How do we know any of this about Onesimus? What's the assumption? What's the implication? He confessed to Paul. He admitted his wrongs. So what's the first thing you do when you have sinned against someone? Admit your wrong. Don't hide it. Don't protect yourself. Share the wrong. I Sinned. Don't it make excuses. Don't blame shift. Don't say, well, you did. No, no, no. Own up to what you did. Admit it. Onesimus admitted that he was wrong. When you sin against someone, is this what you do? Do you admit it? Do you admit that you've done evil? Do you confess that you were wrong with specifics? Not just, I messed up. But what did you do? We, everything we know about Onesimus' sin comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul because Onesimus must have told Paul what he did. We see him admitting his wrongs. Now, some people will confess their sins, but then they try to control the outcome of what happens, Right? I'll tell you, but now I'm going to try to manipulate or control the situation so that the consequences are not too bad. Or maybe I can avoid them altogether. But what we see in Onesimus is not only an admitting of wrong, but an accepting of the consequences that will come. How, how do we see this? He's on his way where? To Philemon. To understand this, you've got to think of the context. Imagine a bank robber who is on his way to the police station. Imagine the person who crosses the border, the illegal immigrant, turning himself into the border patrol. Imagine this, children. You have disobeyed mommy and daddy. They told you not to do something. You did it. Your friend tells you, you need to go tell your parents what you did. And there you are, walking towards your parents' room to say you're wrong. That's a scary thing. Why? Because there may be 
consequences waiting for you, right? There may be some discipline, maybe some spankings. There may be some things that happen to you that you don't like the feeling of. And yet you continue to go anyway. A slave who ran away in ancient Rome had serious consequences waiting for them if they were found out. For the slave, this is historical. For the slave, capture had dire consequences. The price for absconding was typically paid with the body. While physical punishment was not exclusively reserved for escapees, corporal penalties, beatings, for fugitives were especially harsh. In addition to physical punishment, ex-runaways experienced differential treatment in and outside the household. In other words, either you could be severely beaten, even put to death, or you would just be treated differently from the rest of the slaves for the rest of your life. Masters went to great lengths to ensure Flight attempts were never forgotten and that slaves live with the consequences of their crimes. That was the law. Here's Onesimus walking with Tychicus from Rome to Colossae. 262 hours walking. I googled it. All the way, Onesimus had no idea how Philemon would react. He didn't know what he was going to do. We don't even know if he knew what was in the letter that he was carrying. What we do know is that he had an expectation of consequences for what he had done wrong. And he continued to walk toward Philemon's home. Not only did he admit what he did, but he was willing to accept the consequences come what may. Philemon verse one, uh, 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. What is this? You want to be forgiven. Amen. But will you also face the consequences of your sin? For some people, that means jail time. For some people, that may mean you lose a job or support or position. You don't know how people are going to react. Because someone forgives you doesn't mean that there will be no consequences for what you've done. Are you willing to accept those consequences as you approach the one you've wronged? Not only to admit you were wrong, but to accept whatever may come from your confession. The final thing that we see Onesimus do is he approached the offended. In other words, he didn't wait for Philemon to come to him. He approaches Philemon. That's helpful. When you have done wrong, do you initiate reconciliation? You sinned against this person. Are you the one to approach them to make peace? Or do you wait for them to come to you? Well, they're the one who has the problem, right? I mean, I'm willing to to own up to it, but they don't want to talk to me, so I'm just going to stay over here until they... But what did Jesus say? If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against 
you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your guilt. If he has something against you, go to him. Does anyone have something against you? Are you aware of someone who is upset at you? Someone who is offended by you? And have you been waiting for the perfect opportunity for them maybe to come to you or maybe a call or something? What does Jesus say? He says, go. Brother, go. Sister, go. Enough sitting, enough waiting, enough planning, enough making excuses. The Lord has been clear. The word of God is clear. The commandment of Christ is clear. Go to them. I mean, what else do we need to hear? What else do we need to wait for? You've wronged them. Approach. You don't know how they'll react. Accept what comes and admit your wrong. When you need to be forgiven from someone, by someone, Let's follow Onesimus in this example. And finally, we come to Philemon himself, and this is the hardest part of it all. It's one thing to try to bring peace between two people. It's one thing to be the one who needs to be forgiven. But the hardest part seems to be when you're the one who has been wronged. When you're the one who has been offended, when you're the one who's been sinned against, when there is someone who's asking you to forgive and you're angry. You have been betrayed. You have been lied to. You have been hurt. And the last thing you want to do is look or say or be in the same room with that person after what they did. And this letter has something for us here too, doesn't it? Paul tells Philemon first to receive him. Our tendency, withdraw, separate. Paul says, get this, receive him as you would receive me. Wow. Uh, do you do that? I mean, the, here's the Apostle Paul. Philemon more than likely looked up to him. We would ex- basically understand that Paul was probably the one who brought Philemon to the Lord, um, probably his hero, probably loves this man more than anybody else that he knows, apart from his wife and children. And Paul says, you know that man that robbed you, that lied to you, that betrayed you? Receive him like it was me. After all, that's the gospel, right? (laughs) Is this easy? No, it's impossible unless you look to Christ. There's some books over there by Corey Ten Boom. I would recommend them all to you. Corey Ten Boom, if you don't know who she is, woman, her family, godly woman used uh, during the time of the Nazi regime to help hide Jews until they were discovered and then they themselves were thrown into the camps. 
The Lord rescued her out of that after suffering horribly. And now she's going around telling people about the forgiveness of God through Christ Jesus. And at one of these talks, when she's telling people about forgiveness, and she's talking greatly about forgiveness, she's tested. Corey herself was put to the test in 1947 while speaking in a Munich church. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, a fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And she says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. Put yourself there. Here is the person who has hurt you the most. And they're extending their hand to you saying, I love how you were talking about how Jesus forgives. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The man said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? As I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Her sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as she did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in her shoulder, raced down her arm, sprang into her joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, but even so I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Receive them as you would me. And those who are in the body of Christ, what did Paul tell, well, what did Jesus tell Paul? Why are you persecuting me? What did he say to those on his right? I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. 
I was in prison or sick and you visited me. When, Lord, when did we do this to you? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. Receive them. The second thing that Paul tells Philemon to do, appeals, is to release them. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. See, receive him and release him. (laughs) Release him of that and embrace him as a brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To have him back as a brother forever. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul is encouraging Philemon not to free him from prison, but to free him from the debt that Philemon had a right to demand of him. You wronged me. Let it go. Charge it to my account. Whatever he owes you, charge it to my account. And I'll pay. And if I pay, you can require nothing of him. Let it go. Is that what you're doing with those who you need to forgive? Or are you holding on to the hurt? Are you holding on to the pain? Are you rehearsing it? What they did. How could they say this? How could they do that over and over again in your mind? Years and years going over it, repeating it, rehearsing it. Every time you think of them, stirring yourself up with anger to make yourself mad again. Or maybe you say, I don't need to try to remember. I can't forget. And he's never telling you to forget what was done. But in spite of what was done, in the face of what was done, Release them. John Nieder and Thomas Thompson, they said this, to forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. To forgive is to bundle up all the garbage and trash and dispose of it, leaving the house clean and fresh. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned criminal. To forgive is to relax a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking like new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be pieced together again. Is that how you see forgiveness? At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, you are commanded as I am to forgive how? Just as God in Christ forgave you. So the question is, How has God forgiven you? We talked about this earlier. Completely, he's forgiven you of all of your sins. 
And you, Colossians 2.13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Psalm 103.2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all. All your diseases, all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions, all of the intentions of your heart, you have been forgiven of every single sin. That's how God has forgiven you. That's what we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in what, part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you rejoice in the fact that all of your sins have been forgiven while holding on to someone else's? Do you sing those words with tears flowing down your face? Full atonement, can it be? But you won't give forgiveness to someone else he didn't require you to say sorry for every single thing he didn't require you to remember every single deed before he forgave you there wasn't this long waiting period of suffering that you had to go through before he would forgive he forgave you of all can someone say to you my sin not in part but the whole has been forgiven by you He's forgiven you completely. He's forgiven you eternally. Hebrews 8, 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins. How often? No more. Is that how you forgive? We talked about uh, David, right? Here's David who sins greatly. Bathsheba, Uriah, murders, adultery, lying, hiding it all, the whole thing. And David says, the Lord has also put away your sin. And then later talking about David, 1 Kings 14, 7, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. What? The census, Bathsheba, Uriah, eating the showbread, all the sins of David's life, he only did what was right? How could he say that? I will remember their sins no more. Is that how you forgive How does he treat us? He forgives completely all of them eternally. He doesn't bring them up again. He doesn't say, "Uh, yeah, I'll forgive you unless you do it again. And you do it again, I'm going to bring it up and say, see, you didn't really mean it. How many times have you committed the same sin since you've been a Christian? He also forgives in the way he treats us. 
as though we've never done it. His forgiveness is not theoretical. It's not just pretty language without any reality. To put it bluntly, Jesus does not offer fake forgiveness. It is real. It is deep. And it's proven by the way he treats every single forgiven one. Think of how he loves you. Think of adoption. The Bible in the King James talks about being the apple of God's eye. And there have been commentators who said that's not really a good translation, not a good, uh, because the word apple is actually the word for little maiden. And it's the idea of when you look in someone's eye close enough, you can see your reflection. And the Lord is saying, I want you to be so close to me that when we're looking in each other's eyes, we can see each other. That's not fake forgiveness. That's real and deep. And the Lord continually says, draw near to me. Draw near to me. You're not close enough. Draw near to me. Closer and closer still. So how have you been forgiven? That is the forgiveness that you are to offer to others. And then the last thing that we see here, how often, repeat, repeat. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, knowing full well that it's possible for Philemon to sin against, uh, for Onesimus to sin against Philemon again. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you what? Must forgive him seven times in a day. Let somebody do that to you on the fifth time. What would you say to them? Stop coming. You don't mean it. Is that what Jesus says? You must forgive. Why? Because this is how God forgives you. How many times a day do you lack faith? How many times a day do you allow fear to keep your mouth closed? The fear of man. You don't speak up on his behalf. How many times a day do you not treasure the word? How many times a day do you not remember the word? The word of God. And yet you can be upset at someone else who forgets your words. But you don't remember the words of the God who made you. And yet how often does he say, come to me, I will forgive you. Come to me, confess your sins. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. I will restore you. I will refresh you. And yet how do we treat those who wrong us? You know what it communicates, brothers and sisters? When you ask God to forgive you, but you won't forgive someone else, it says this. The crime you committed against me is worse than what I have committed against God. He can forgive, I won't. It says that you're more important than God. The things that have been done to you are worse than the things that you have done to God. And listen, forgiveness does not minimize the crimes 
the terrible things, the hurt. It doesn't say what you did was little. Think about it. When God forgives you, does he say sin is unimportant? No. He crushed his son for your forgiveness. No one on the face of the earth hates sin more than God. And he still forgives. I don't know what they did to you, and I know it can feel like your case is unique. But the infinitely holy, righteous, perfect one has forgiven you, Christian, of everything. Who are you to look at someone else who needs the same forgiveness you do and say no? Pay what you owe. When the Lord has not required you to pay a single dime. Because Christ has paid for you. The last thing I will say, and it needs to be said, forgiveness and reconciliation do not always line up. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon that they may be reconciled because Onesimus was repentant. He was willing to accept the consequences, admit his wrong, and he's approaching Philemon. There are people in this world who have wronged you and they're not repentant. They don't care. They're not sorry. And if there is no repentance, there can be no reconciliation. If someone has abused you, they're hurting you, even to this day, continuing to do it. The Lord is not saying forgiveness means for you to just continue to put yourself close proximity that they may continue to abuse you. No, without, recon- without repentance, there can be no reconciliation. But if they are repentant, they are sorry, they hate what they've done. And the only thing keeping you all from being reconciled is the hurt and anger that you feel. Then you are stopping the demonstration of the gospel You don't want to do that. So I appeal to you for love's sake. Remember the cross. Remember what you've been forgiven of. Remember that you, just like Onesimus, you offended your master. And you deserve the worst punishments under the law. And yet here comes someone who seeks to reconcile you and says, charge it to my account. That is what Christ has done. Father, what wrong they have committed against you, charge it to my account and receive them as you would receive me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not forgiven of a single sin, but you can be. The Lord is willing and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he will forgive all of your iniquities because he crushed his son. And the blood of Christ is what allows us to have our transgressions forgiven. If you don't know what it is to be forgiven, Christ is willing and able to forgive you even this very day no matter what you've done no matter how many times you've done it no matter how shameful it is there is forgiveness in Christ and that forgiveness when it's granted to you gives you the supernatural power to forgive the worst crimes against you 
It doesn't mean what they did was right. It doesn't make it a small thing. But it shows the power of God at work in your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you forgive us. You forgive us of everything we've done. You who are so good and so pure, who deserve to be loved and worshipped and cherished and adored, glorified, trusted, believed. Lord, we have rebelled against you. We've spit in your holy face. We have mocked you with a high hand and a smile on our face. And yet, with full knowledge of everything we've done, you would send your son and crush him, that his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And you don't constantly bring that to our face and say, look at what you've done. In fact, what you do constantly is say, look at what my son has done for you. Father, there are, there are probably broken hearts in this room, wounded, scarred, hurt. And you know better than anyone else about forgiveness. Help your people, Lord, to forgive those who have wronged them. And may those who are here who are unforgiven by you cry out to be forgiven in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God help us all to forgive those who have sinned against us. You are dismissed.